for visiting with us, we've been going through a, a four-week series talking about what we call the four cardinal doctrines of the organization we're part of, which is the Assemblies of God. And the way our organization works is the Assemblies of God. We are an, an independent church, but we're part of a kind of an umbrella. It's called a cooperative fellowship. And what that means is we agree to cooperate with all these other churches. Well, in the 90-plus years of our history, that little group that's decided to cooperate together has become now over 65 million uh, members worldwide. Matter of fact, uh, the Assemblies of God is the largest Protestant denomination on the planet. And so people sometimes in a place like Wisconsin say, the Assembly of who? And uh, we say, well, we're just this little tiny organization that, that is all over the whole world. Um, 65 million strong. And it's interesting, the reason I bring that up is, as I've been looking at these four cardinal doctrines, I have said to myself, I've said to our staff, if I were to have created an organization and put four cardinal doctrines out there, these are not the four I would have put front and center. Royal Rangers have the four gold points they learn in Royal Rangers. These are not the four gold points I would have put and said these are the four cardinal doctrines. Some of them wouldn't be included, but not all of them. And I've thought about that a lot over the last four weeks and said, why these four? Why did I believe by the leading of the Holy Spirit, God structure this thing in such a way that these four would be emphasized, and by emphasizing these four, um, the Holy Spirit has used this organization to, to go across the entire world and bring millions and millions and millions of people into the kingdom of God. And I think it's interesting because the four, we're going to look at the last of the four today, really focus on God's activity today. They focus on what God is doing in the world today. Now, there's other doctrines that are just as important as these four, that are important for, for life and development in the Christian walk. But these four doctrines deal with the reality that God is alive and well today, and he's really ministering in the lives of people. And if you're maybe like me, you know, Mark, you talked about being raised you know, denominationally, and I was too, um, and I'm not criticizing that, but you know what? I didn't really believe that God was active in the affairs of man. I, I kind of hoped he was, but I really didn't know it. And what I've learned is that God really is alive and well, that the Spirit of the Lord is really at work around our world today. And when the crafters of this, this, this movement, um, you know, 1914 got together, they said, these are the things we want to focus on. Salvation. That's what we looked at first. They looked at the fact that God really saving people today, that he wants you to have a relationship with them. Baptism in the Holy Spirit, that, that there is a vitality in being filled with the Holy Spirit that goes beyond just being saved. And we say just being saved, but it's possible to get saved and kind of be stuck and never develop in your spiritual walk, never be used greatly by the Lord. And we learn that, that one of the dynamics to being used greatly is to be filled with His Spirit. And so we believe in this, in this scriptural um, teaching the baptism or the filling in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to be resident in our lives very aggressively and He wants to flow through us and work through us and speak through us. Um, divine healing we looked at. That was the, the third one. Divine healing saying that, you know what? God still heals the sick today. And when we looked at Jesus' ministry, it said He went around preaching and healing the sick. And that part of that gospel New Testament message is that God is alive and well and we use real life examples of people in this very church who have been divinely healed, not 2,000 years ago on the page of the scriptures, but today from our doctors, you know, they can say, this guy, you know, I used an example of my son Brett, who one day had a broken arm, they're waiting to do surgery on it because it couldn't be, it had to be, it had to be, um, had surgery because of where he broke his humerus bone, snapped it in half, and the next day we took him in and the doctor says, this is a different kid, his arm's not broken anymore. 
said, what did you do? And thought that somebody was playing a joke on him. And, and the nurse said, because she was a Christian, said, I don't, I don't know, um, you know uh, what you think, but I know the parents are Christians and they pray. And they said, maybe God healed him. The doctor said, nonsense. I said, nonsense? Look at the x-rays. It was broken today. It's not broken tomorrow. That's a miracle. So God still heals the sick. And these guys who crafted this thing and said, these are our cardinal doctrines, were trying to get a point to us. Not just saying that, that these um, are more important than everything, but to say that, you know what, God really is active in the affairs of people today. And he wants us to know that. And so today we come to the fourth one of our, of our four. And this one is something that's it's very important for today because it looks to our future. And it says this, it's the, it's the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. The reality that Jesus is coming back to earth again. Now we think about the fact that Jesus came one time, right? He came as a baby in a manger. We celebrated every Easter. We, uh, Christmas, we celebrated Easter, the fact that he rose and went to heaven. But I don't know how often we think about the fact that Jesus, according to scriptures, is coming back again. You see, Jesus made a promise to us in his word. He said, you know what? I am going away, but I'm going away and I'm coming back. That Jesus will physically come back to this earth. And what we call it um, in the church world is we call it the blessed hope. We have hope in the fact that someday Jesus is coming back for us. And in Acts chapter 1, and and you can read this later, but in Acts chapter 1, and by the way, if you're kind of new to the Lord, Acts, the book of Acts, is the, is the history book of the early church. And we see how God operates in the affairs of people by looking at the history book of the early church. And one thing we see in Acts chapter 1 is um, just after Jesus has gone, um, he's done his ministry, he's been crucified, he's risen from the dead, uh, he is with his disciples, he tells them to wait in Jerusalem and pray, and the very last picture we have of Jesus is he's with his disciples on the mountain, and all of a sudden he begins to rise up into heaven. Has anybody ever been to a passion play? The passion play, like there's one in Arkansas, Suzanne and I went to on our honeymoon, and they're all over the place, and it depicts the life of Christ. And that last scene is all of a sudden, it's, it's really dramatic when, when all of a sudden Jesus gets lifted up, and he goes off into the clouds and he disappears. But the story in Acts says that Jesus disappears into the clouds, he ascends, we call it the ascension, he ascends into heaven, but what happens next? All of a sudden it says there appears who? Two angels. And the angels ask a funny question to the disciples standing there and say, why are you standing here staring into the clouds? And he says, don't you know this? That this same Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. When the very last second Jesus was on earth and lifted up, he, he said, listen, the angel stood there and said, listen, friends, he's coming back again. Jesus is coming back And that wasn't a new thought for them. Jesus in his very own ministry had told his followers that he was coming back. Grab your Bibles if you would and turn with me. And we're going to look at a a number of sections of Scripture today because we're just going to let Scripture speak for itself. And I'm going to do my best to kind of talk slow. I feel like I'm in a huge hurry because we're kind of got got out of the gates late. And if I, you know, I talk fast. If you're visiting, I talk twice the average speed, I think, of the average human anyways. And if I feel, and I had a cup of coffee this morning and it wasn't decaf, and if I feel rushed, I even crank that volume up more, and I get done, and you all say, what did he say? So, okay, take a breath, Mark. <sighs> Slow down. So, Jesus himself told his followers that he's going to come back one day. Look at with me in John chapter 14. 
the words of Jesus as he's comforting his disciples. He's coming near the end of his life with them and he, he speaks to them. He knows he's going to ascend pretty soon. He knows he's going into heaven and he gives these words of comfort to his disciples in Acts 14, starting in verse 1. It says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. So Jesus comes and he makes them a promise. He says, I will come back and get you. Jesus knew what was in store for himself. He knew what was in store for his followers. He knew the kind of death he was going to die. He knew the kind of persecution they were going to face. He knew the future for them. And he lets them know in advance. He says, listen, it's going to get ugly, but don't worry. It may get rough for a while, but I'm coming back to get you and to take you to a better place. I'm not going to leave you here. I'm going to come back and get you and, and take you to my father's house with, with many rooms in this wonderful place. I'm going to take you. And he says, if it wasn't true, I would have told you. He said, I'm telling you now, this is the truth. And church, understand something. Jesus knew what was in store for you and me. He knew what was in store for us. He knew that what 2010 would look like. And so he makes the same promise to you and he makes the same promise to me. He says, I'm coming back and I will come again and I'll receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus makes that promise to his followers. You know, Someday Jesus is coming back. So what I want to do today with the remainder of the time that we have together is I want to answer some questions that I think you and I generally have when we think about the second coming of Christ. And I hope for some of you that this is a brand new thought. You're going to say, wow, what an incredible promise. For some of you who have known about this for a while, you're going to say, you know what, I hadn't thought of it like that before. And we're going to go away from here with this incredible sense of hope this incredible sense of awe that one of these days the clouds are going to bust open and Jesus is going to come back. And so let's answer some questions. And, and I, I want to talk about three questions today that I think are the most important or the most common questions we have when we think about the second coming of Christ. The first question is this. What if I was to ask you, say, what would be the first and most common question people would ask about the second coming of Christ, what would you say it is? When? When is Jesus coming back? People have been trying to figure this out ever since the day he left. Ever since the day Jesus left, they said, when in the world, you promised that you're coming back, when are you coming back? And I'm going to give you the absolute answer to when Jesus, put it on the, on the CD, the exact answer to when Jesus is coming back. You know when he's coming back? We don't know. That's the exact biblical answer to when Jesus is coming back. We do not know. The disciples themselves asked Jesus this very question. They said, is now the time you're going to set up your kingdom? And, and is this the time you're going to establish this? And you're going to come back in power? And, and this was his answer to his disciples. He said, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. He says, in other words, that's not, your, that's not none of your business when exactly I'm coming back. And in fact, Jesus says that neither himself nor the angels in heaven know the exact time when he will return. He says only the Father knows. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 36, and we're going to look at this later in the sermon, he says, but of that day, the day of his return, an hour no one knows, 
not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. You see, Scripture is really clear. And it's funny to me in the church world how God can make something so incredibly clear, and yet we will try to do, try to figure out or, or put energy into figuring something out that he says you can't figure out. He said it's very clear. We cannot set the date and say Jesus is coming back on this day or in this year. And you know what? Christians in the church have humiliated themselves. Christians in the church have, have robbed the faith of other people who are actually seeking after God by saying, God told me this is the day, this is the month, this is the year. They've written books about it. If you've been serving God for a while, who was serving God in the 80s? Remember, what was the book in the 80s? 88 Reasons Jesus is Going to Come Back in 88. You know what the author of that book did when Jesus did not return in 88? The next year he wrote 89 Reasons. He did. Honest to God truth. Why Jesus will come back in 89. You know what? If you've been even serving God a little longer, you remember back in the days of the Vietnam conflict and all these things, Henry Kissinger was a, was a great authority and, and the church world for some reason included. Henry Kissinger is the Antichrist. And the Huey helicopters of Vietnam were the locust of Revelation. And they all said, this is it. Jesus is coming back today. And they, you know what? They could paint a picture. And you know what? I appreciate that in the kingdom of God, there's creative people. I'm not that creative. But you know what? In their creativity, they've always been wrong. You know why they've been wrong? Jesus says, you can't set the date. And so whenever we do that, we in essence, we really, the, the, the bad side of it is, is that we humiliate ourselves and the church, the non-church world looks on and says, what a bunch of dopes. They stood there and said, Jesus is coming back in 1988. And if that wasn't true, how can I believe you when you say you must be born again? Well, you know what? The Bible's clear. It says we don't know the date. Can we know seasons? The Bible says that. We can kind of know the seasons. He says it's a, the season. You know, you can tell when it's getting to be fall. The leaves start to turn colors. You can see, you can tell when it's kind of be spring because the, buds, the flowers start to bud. And you can see it's coming. But you know what? You can't set the date. And so we can say this. It seems like it's getting near the end. And friends, I would say this. It seems like it's getting very near the end. That's what it seems like to me. But you know what? Can we set a date? We can't set a date. We don't know. Um, no one knows when. But, you know, so, so we cannot. So what do we know? If we can't say the date, this is what we do know about the date. You know when Jesus is going to come back? At the perfect we know Jesus will come back at the exact perfect time. You see, scoffers have always said to the church world, you know what, you say he's coming back. But they didn't always say, we don't know when he's coming back. They just say, it's a bunch of nonsense. He's not coming back at all. And they've always scoffed and says, for now, now on this day, they say for over 2,000 years, you crazy Christians have been saying Christ is coming back, but he's not come back. You know what, I think you're crazy. The Apostle Paul, or Apostle Peter rather, addressed that. Turn your Bibles all the way near the end of your Bible to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. The Apostle Peter answers this question. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 3. You know what I love about the Bible? So many things. You know, one of the things I love is we can read something that was written 2,000 years ago and say it speaks exactly to where we are still today because people are saying the exact same things. Verse 3 of chapter 3. It's talking about the coming day of the Lord. It says, Now this, first of all, that, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. And I think that's funny. You know how you know you're a mocker? If you're mocking. Mockers will come with their mocking. 
following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, in other words, they died, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. And I love the, you know, the Lord just saying, okay, this is why they're wrong. It escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise of coming, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You see, Jesus is coming back all right, but it's just in his timing. And why is, what is it about his timing that Peter talks about here? His timing is not slow. He's not being slow. He's not forgot to send Jesus back. Uh, to hit. Why? Because to him, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Guess what? If God decides to wait five minutes, your lifetime is gone. That's the point he's making. If God just says, I'm going to do it, and just, you ever do, your kids ever do this? Yes, I'm going to do something. They go, uh, in just a moment, just a minute. If God does that, and just says, in just a minute, You've been born, lived, and died. To him a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. He's not being slow. What's the text say? He's being gracious. He's being gracious. He says that he's giving people, in verse 9, he's giving them time to repent. He says he's not being slow because he's forgot about us. He's being patient, giving people time to repent. He's giving people, the church world, time to go across this planet, to go across the street, to go into your workplace, to go to your family reunion and tell people the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. He's giving us time to tell that message and then he's giving time for those people to hear to respond to the message. Because what's it say? The very last thing it says in Second Peter. It says that he doesn't want anybody to perish. So in grace, he says, you know what? I'm just being patient in my return. So you know what, Mark? I'm just going to wait another five minutes. I'm just going to wait another, another 30 minutes in waiting that amount of time, which to us is, is a lifetime. To him, it's just a blink of an eye. He's saying, I'm doing it to give more people a chance to respond to the gospel and, get, and be saved so that when he returns, they end up in glory with him for eternity. So you know what? Does that make sense? He's waiting, not because he's forgotten. He's waiting to give people a chance to respond. So when will Jesus return? Our first question, the answer is, we don't know, but God does. And that's good enough for me, right? First question, pretty good answer. Jesus answers it himself. The word answers it. When? We don't know, but God does know. And his grace, he'll come at the right time. Second question. And this is the one that I think for some of us who've maybe walked with the Lord for a while, that this is going to bring some clarity. Because as I've talked to people about the second coming, I think um, sometimes they don't view the second coming in the way that I'm going to describe it today. Um, and because of that, they get a little muddied in trying to figure out what's really going on. And, and let me say this before we get started. When, I, when we talk about end time things, we talk about the future. Sometimes we talk about it like this is fact. This is exactly the way it's going to happen. Well, that's the mistake people made in setting dates. I'll say this, when we're trying to figure these things out, we're doing our best to read the scriptures, interpret them, and give answers. 
There's some other godly Christian people who read the same book and look at it just a little bit different. I'm okay with that. What way I'm presenting it today is what I think really is the, is the, the, um, the easiest way to understand, the, the theory that has the least amount of holes in it. Pastor Bruce, did you have Dr. Flockster as a professor? Dr. Flockster, was a, we both went to the same, the same college, and uh, he was the pneumatology professor, and he was eschatology professor, studied Holy Spirit, studied end times. And I remember him saying he was the guy who formulated my thinking because he said, our view isn't perfect, it just has the least holes in it. And so that's kind of the way I approach this here. What seems to be the most simple, the most biblically accurate, simplest view to grasp about end time things? So... Um, what's that second coming of Christ look like? Here's what I think it looks like, and I think it's solidly scriptural. That the second coming of Christ has two distinct parts. And this is where I think sometimes we get, we get muddy. The second coming of Christ has two distinct parts. The first part is Jesus coming for his church. And it's a term, it's not a biblical term we use for it. We use the term rapture that Jesus comes for his church. Now, you can look in your Bible index, your Bible dictionary, and look for rapture, and you're never going to find it because it's not a biblical term. It's a term we use to describe an event that the Bible describes at a day, and we're going to talk about it in a minute, where God takes his church to be with him. So the first part of his second coming is Jesus coming for his church. That's the rapture. The second part of Jesus' second coming is when he takes that church, the bride of Christ, with, they are with him, and they come with him back to the earth to bring judgment onto the earth. So it's a two-part. He takes his church out, up to be with him, and then in a set time, he brings his church with him back to the world um, in order to bring judgment. So let's look at what the scriptures say that describe these two events. The first part, Jesus coming for his church. Turn your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4. I know I'm having you flip around a lot today, but that's okay, isn't it? 1 Thessalonians 4. Some of you who are new to Christ, you're going, where in the world are all these all different books? That's good. That's exercise. Spiritual exercise. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Talking about those who died in Christ. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren about those who are asleep. And again, what sleep means, they've, they've passed away. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, so it's talking about the coming of the Lord, you're alive at the time, will not be preceded will not precede those who have fallen asleep or those who have already died who are servants of Christ. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is a picture of of what theologians, as I said, call the rapture. Rapture meaning the snatching away, the taking away of believers to be with Jesus. Those who have died with died as Christians, already dead, and those who are alive and still serving Jesus will rise to meet Jesus in the air um, and will always be with them. 
Now, I remember as a brand new believer, saved, I was maybe 19 years old, and I came into a place where there was a Bible study going on, and they had a tract sitting on the table. And on the cover, it said rapture. I'd never heard the term. I'd never heard the concept in my life. And there was a picture of like a car driving and it's crashing a telephone pole and a little ghost guy is going out of the car. And over here, somebody's doing something, a house is on fire and little ghost people are going up in the sky. And I'm like, what is that supposed to be about? You know? And I start reading and it says, there's a day coming when God is going to blow a trumpet and the dead in Christ will rise first and then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And I thought, wow, that's bizarre. That's pretty cool. You can write movies about this. Well, I found out they did. <laughs> There's all kinds of movies about it. And in recent times, the, the series that, that was a book series that turned into a, into a movie uh, was the Left Behind series. And some of you read that. It's talking about that day where someday, you know, God's going to take his church up to heaven. Him, Jesus coming for his church. And scripture teaches that, that the believers go to be with the Lord. Um, and then after that, what we see from scriptures, after the Lord takes him to be with the Lord, there's going to be a time of great horror in the world, a great horror on the planet that's called the Great Tribulation. And best we can figure out, it lasts seven years, and, and that the Lord is taking his church out of the world because he's going to bring judgment and punishment because of sin on the world. So he removes the church, and he brings this um, punishment upon the, upon the world. And that's why he takes them out. Um, now, it, it's the rapture, and so God takes them to heaven, and, and you say, okay, you know, what about that? Here's the thing that I think is the most important fact for us to know about the rapture, because I don't know, what, what's the trumpet going to sound like? I don't know. You know, uh, what's it going to look like? Will we really see little ghost people going up? I don't know, you know. But, you know, what I do know that I think is the most important is this. According to Scripture, that event, that first part of the second coming, could happen at any moment. That that rapture of the church, that taking of the church to heaven could happen at any moment. And the word we use to describe it is the word imminent. If something is imminent, it means it could happen at any time. Not eminent, like eminence, meaning something's great and royal, but imminent, meaning it could happen at any time. You know, that, that today could be the day as I'm preaching, some of you said, oh God, please do it now. You know, the trumpet of God could sound... You know, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive and remain will be caught together with the Lord, and will go to be with the Lord forever in the air. That it could happen at any time. Um, that's that's amazing. That will change the way we live. We're going to look at that in a moment. How it changes the way we live. But the rapture, this first part of the second coming, is to know that at some time, the Lord himself, it says, will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ will rise first, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And that the rapture of the church, that taking away of the church to be with the Lord, could happen at any moment. It could happen now. And some of you who were born and raised in the church, you grew up with this. You, I didn't, wasn't raised in the church. I didn't know about this stuff. And uh, like, so Suzanne and some other people have told me that because you knew it could happen at any time, sometimes you'd like wake up in the morning and all the people in the house would be missing, mom, dad, brothers and sisters, and you convinced the rapture happened and the whole family's gone and you'd run around in fear. Suzanne told me she did it, running around crying. Oh no, Jesus came back and she said this, why would he take my sisters and brothers and not me? I'm better than them, you know. How come God, why would you leave me? Leave them behind but not me, you know. And so that event 
you know, that, that imminent event could happen according to Scripture at any time. But it's interesting. It doesn't say it's something to fear. What was the thing he said about it? He said, comfort one another with these words. Why? It's a comfort to know when you serve Jesus that this may be the day. Some of you had a rotten, anybody had a rotten week last week? I had a great week. Anybody have a rotten week? Some of you did. Job stunk, boss was mean, you know, car broke down. You know what? The next time the car breaks down, just say, God, this could be the moment. God, I hope this is the moment. Take me to heaven, God, because I want to go right now. The boss is yelling. Close your eyes and say, oh, Lord. The Bible says this word. It says, Maranatha, even so, come, Lord Jesus. You know, you say, come on, Jesus, blow the trumpet. I want to go home. It's hope. It's the hope. It's, it's comfort each other. This is going to happen. So that's the first part of the second coming. And I should stop telling stories that I wasn't planning on and we'll never get through this. Stop making jokes with you. Second part of the, of the, of the coming of Christ um, is this. Jesus, first of all, comes and he gets his church to be with him. And the second part is now Jesus coming with his church back to the earth. Grab your Bibles, turn all the way to the last book, book of Revelation. Revelation 19. Some of you who are maybe new to Christ would say this. How come you got to flip through all his books? How come you can't go to the chapter on the second coming? You know, like God designed it that you turn to the second coming chapter and it's all there. Understand the book, the Bible's not written as a systematic theology. It's not written in such a way that it's a textbook that we open up. It's all different elements. He gives different points to theology all through the scriptures. And he wants us to handle accurately the word of truth. He wants us as children to read all of it, to embrace all of it and put the parts together. And so that's what we're doing here. So Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, talking about Jesus coming with his church. And it says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Now this is interesting. This is a picture of Jesus we're going to find out. People want to say today, oh, Jesus is a big wimp. Who would, men, you know, men, real men wouldn't, wouldn't be one of these religious, religions for women and children. That's a bunch of hogwash. Jesus comes on a horse. He's got flames coming out of him. He's got swords in his mouth. This guy's tough. You know, he comes out. So his eyes are a flame of fire. And in his, on his hand are many crowns, diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed in a white, dipped in white, in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, here's the part to pay attention to, the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following him on, a white, on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he is a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now that's a picture of Jesus coming back with his church. We see this picture of him coming. And this is after the great tribulation. Jesus comes riding on a white horse, followed by an army. And I want to point out the army to you here. How does it describe the army? It says, their armies are which are with him from heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. What is that a description of? In heaven. Does anybody know? It's a description of the church. It's a description of the bride of Christ. Just look up a, a couple of verses earlier. Look at verse 19, verses 7 and 8. 
It says, let us rejoice and be glad. This is talking about the marriage of the Lamb, where the, in the scriptures we're called the bride, the church is called the bride, and Jesus is the Lamb, and someday we're going to be, we're going to be married together, and as we're going to be united, the church and Christ are going to be united. And here it says, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of a lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The bride is the church. Now look at, listen to the description of the bride. And it was given to her, the bride, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So it's a description, it's the same description he uses as the army who's following Christ out of heaven. The army following Christ out of heaven is, by description from the same chapter, the bride of Christ, the church. So the church is, resur- is raised in the rapture up to be with Jesus, and then a day comes after the, re- after the uh, great tribulation where this bride now comes following Jesus back to the earth to bring judgment. Jesus came the first time as a little baby in a manger in poverty to live and to die for the sins of man, but he's coming back a second time riding on a white horse with an army riding on white horses with the entire church, raptured church on white horses with with flames in his eyes and a sword out of his mouth to come to bring judgment to the earth. He's returning as a conquering king. And he uses his sword to judge the nations, it says, and to strike down those who oppose him. He will triumph over his enemies. That's what the second coming is all about. When Jesus returns a second time with the bride in tow following him, he will come to establish his rule. And you know what the end result? There's going to be some more events, but you know what the ultimate end result of that's going to be? The scripture says that then one day every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because you know what? Right now you might talk to somebody about Christ and they say it's a bunch of nonsense. Jesus isn't really real. How come you believe in a guy 2,000 years ago who died? You know what? We try to answer those questions. We pray for the Holy Spirit to come and reveal the reality of Christ. But one day a day is coming when all those questions are going to be answered. And they're going to go, you're right. You're right. Here he comes riding on a white horse and the armies of God following behind him and he's going to come and establish his rule and dominion on this earth and every tongue every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and realize that Jesus is coming so friends there is a day coming when Jesus will prove that he is who he says he really is that no one will doubt that he really is the king of kings and the lord of lords that day that's coming is called the that day is called the second coming that Jesus will take his church up and then come back with his church into this world and establish his dominion, his rule upon this earth and eventually destroy the earth and all these things that will happen after that. But Jesus is going to come back and prove that he really is who he says he is. That's what the second coming is all about. Jesus coming with his bride into this earth to say, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. That's what the second coming is really all about. Now, very quickly, that brings us to our third question. The question is this. How should we live in light of knowing that Jesus is coming back? We see that he's coming back. We don't know when. He's coming, he's going to take his church home. It could be today and someday. And after that, seven years later, he's coming with his church back to this earth. How should we live in light of knowing that information? When you have information, then you're responsible for the information. How should we live in light of having this knowledge now? And I would just simply say this. You know how you should live? 
be ready. Be ready. Turn in your Bibles back to the first book of the New Testament. Book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 24. And we're going to read a, a pretty long section, but this is going to summarize the, pretty much the rest of the service. Chapter 24, starting in verse 36. It says, But of that day, the day Jesus returns, and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the Son of God, but the Father alone. We said that, we read that verse earlier. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like in the days of Noah. For as in, the, in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not even understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in a field. One will be taken and one will be left. What's that a picture of? The rapture. Two women will be grinding. I wonder if the little ghosts are going to go. Will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. And it's interesting, when you don't think he will. Verse 45, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom the master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? So he's saying, in this time I'm gone, I put people in charge. Who is the faithful servant? Verse 46, Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves, and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on that day when he does not expect him, at an hour which he does not know, and he will cut him into pieces, and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When Jesus returns, he says, be ready, because it could be today. And he says, live in a state of readiness. And he says, you know what? If you're living in a state of readiness, you're like the good servant. For the good servant, there's nothing to fear. In fact, it says in his text we just read that that good service, servant, when Jesus, when the Lord returns, it's something to look forward to, because it's a day of comfort and it's a day of reward. He will hear his master's praise and he'll receive his master's reward. He's going to put him in charge of a bunch of stuff. He's going to be praised and rewarded on the day of Christ's return. That's why we can call this, this, this whole picture the blessed hope. No matter how um, hard our struggles on earth are, there's a day coming when Jesus will comfort and reward his children. When we will be reunited with those who have gone before us in Christ and then, then we'll forever be with the Lord from that day on. That's a blessed hope for those who are serving the Lord. But he points out a different group, and he says, for the evil servant, for those who aren't living for him, those who said, they're not, you're not coming back for a long time, I'm going to live however I want, I'm going to, I'm going to be a bad to people and live immorally, he said, there is much to fear, that Jesus' return for them will represent judgment and punishment. You know, and I know we don't like to think about this kind of stuff, but friends, a day is coming when the truth of God's word will be realized, and heaven and hell will be more than something out there, more than something in the future. They will be here and now realities. A day is coming when that will be true, and we have to be ready to meet the Lord. You say, well, how do I get ready if I'm not? 
Jesus makes it really clear that the way we get ready to meet him, to see him face to face on that day is to know him today as our Savior and Lord and then to live lives of service to him. That's how we get ready. We saw in Second Peter, we looked at earlier, that the Lord, he said, is waiting to send Jesus back so that more people can have time to repent. What's that mean? It means change directions. That once you were living, going, living your own life, living self-willed, living lives completely where, God, where you are God, and on a day you finally say, you know what? Now from this day forward, by an activity of the Holy Spirit in your life, now Jesus is my God and my Lord, and I will walk and serve him. I'll ask him to forgive me of my sins, and I'll become a child of God. You know what? Jesus knows that we can't fix our own spiritual lives, that people are lost in sin, but Jesus can forgive our sins. Correct? And he says that we need to turn to him. We need to ask for forgiveness. Turn away from our own lives of self-willedness. That's called repentance. And then seek his forgiveness and he will forgive us and he'll give us brand new life in Christ. And once we have that new life in Christ, then we live every day as a servant waiting for his return. Every day we ask ourselves, Lord, we don't hide and say, well, he's not coming today so I can get away with it. Instead we say, Lord, you could come today. So I want to be ready. And I live in such a way that is honoring and pleasing to you. So if we live that way, then the day of Christ's return is something to celebrate. It's not something to be feared.